All right, are you ready, Brendan? I'm ready, Sean. All right, let's do this. Welcome to There and Back Again. And again. I'm Brendan. I'm Sean. And on this week's episode, we are continuing our rewatch of the Bourne trilogy. Uh, last time we started with Bourne Identity, the introduction to Matt Damon's Jason Bourne character. And this week we continue with the Bourne Supremacy. This one came out in July, July 23rd, 2004. Different director this time, Paul Greengrass, who I believe directed every every installment from here on out in the in the series and yeah so we're pretty much not not exactly picking up right where we left off there is a a time jump from the first one to this one but before we get into the details and all that do you have any specific memories of of seeing this movie or anything you want to share off the top Uh, honestly none (laughs) that's i feel awful coming into the conversation with that but i have no recollection of seeing this in the theater or when i eventually saw this i feel like i might have waited until it was out but i honestly have no clue did do you actually recall having a specific memory of of this one in the theaters or when you saw it the first time to be fair don't feel bad because i mean it is you know it's it's my top 10 it's not yours so like you know that's true but honestly i don't really have any really specific memories of seeing this one in the theater you know i i'm relatively certain that i did see it at the cinema but i i mean i do remember seeing the movie i remember enjoying the movie but that's about it i I don't have any other specific memories about it really other than seeing it and enjoying it yeah Yeah. got it yeah i mean it's like we've said along the way with these trilogies it's kind of it's lumped in you know so even if the film itself doesn't hold any specific nostalgia or meanings. It's it's part of the story, so yeah, it it has to be included. But but yeah, I mean, it's it, it, on its own though. It's still a great film, it's still a very well done film, and a lot of things to admire about it. I mean, I remember it being popular. Sure. I remember you know there being a lot of talk about the the fight scenes and the stunts and the car chases and whatnot. So there's there's nothing that in my mind, when you look at this one kind of sets it apart from the other two as being on a different lower tier. Yeah. It, you know, it, it does have a lot of the familiar stuff from the born identity. You know, like you said, there's, you know, a fight scene, there's a big car chase again, you know, there's a lot of similar things, but you know, we have different, different settings, different motivations for different characters, of course, different characters in general. But yeah, I, I think, you know, it it is a good movie. It would not stand on its own without the trilogy because there's so much that you need to know from the first one to like really be able to follow what's happening in this one. But it we'll talk more about at the end whether or not it, you know, could have like ended with this this movie. But yeah, it's it's a solid middle film of a of a great trilogy. It's a trilogy that should have remained as such, but that's a conversation for a different time. Yeah. Yeah, we can, you know, maybe after after we watch Ultimatum, we can have that conversation. Decide um, if someday we're going to watch Jason Bourne, but we'll see. Yeah. 
So it, it did win another uh, stunt award again for the car chase, which well-deserved. Another great sequence in this movie. This was really just more of a... Well, I guess for a while there it was police, but then after then it kind of turned into just kind of a one-on-one car chase, and we can, you know, we can get into that more. But the movie itself starts with flashback sequences. We have the return of, of Chris Cooper as Conklin, and there's just enough in that kind of dreamy sequence to give you the idea that it's a memory that Bourne is having of his first job. And, you know, he's he's in the car. You see Conklin's kind of looking back at him and saying, you know, training's over. This is it. And then he wakes up. And immediately, yeah, we're, it's, it's quickly shown, like you said, that it is we got a two-year time jump here where him and Marie have been living somewhat off the grid or attempting to for for the for a while here and yep. and somewhat successfully, but he's still dealing with a lot of tension, a lot of maybe somewhat paranoia and pain and trauma from everything that's happened and yep. you know, trying to record it all. I, I know they kinda of have a brief conversation about everything that he's been recording in these notebooks, trying to piece together all these dreams slash memories that they keep coming into his head almost very, you know, vividly, like he's seeing them as if they're actually happening or playing out. And and he references the headaches, which is something that was very much emphasized or alluded to in the in the first film. Not just not just by him, but other Treadstone agents. Yeah. These he- headaches due to their their training or whatever has been planted into them and their you know, their their brainwashing conditioning or whatever they've gone through. And so, so in this one, obviously he mentions the headaches, which I was, I was initially like glad they did. I was glad they didn't just like say like, Oh, remember the headaches from the first movie? Those were, those are done. All they got to do is take some Tylenol now. And those things are fixed because Treadstone shut down, (laughs) but you know, they, they made a reference to him here. And then as you watch throughout the film, again, they're just kind of gone. Hmm. I, I don't know. They, they made it seem like from the first one, these headaches were very like a debilitating type of headaches. And now it's just kind of something that either that maybe he's just learned to deal with or something. But in the first one, when he is in that that face off with the professor in that field, and they're having that brief conversation after he's shot him, and you can just see like the pain and the almost the agony, the emotional agony they can on their faces when they're kind of talking about the headaches a little bit. Right. I don't. Know, they just made him seem like these things that were just going to keep ramping up and getting worse and worse, and then they're just kind of somewhat forgotten here. But I don't know, me personally, when I have a headache, going to work isn't really something that I really want to do. Like, headaches kind of knock me out sometimes. But, I don't know. I'm not Jason Bourne. Well, it could be, you know, I mean, I think ultimately from the time that they they start off with them in India to the end of the movie, you know, I don't get the impression that that's much more than just, like, really a few days. So, it, you know, it could be that he they don't get him all the time. Maybe it's just something that pops up, you know every few days or something or they do they do reference it again when they bring nikki back with them to uh to berlin and they talk about like she kind of gives them some of the background of of treadstone along with abbott you know she talks about all the physical symptoms that they had including you know headaches or they you know could have like outbursts and different things like that Mm. yeah i didn't catch that yeah yeah, I, I, I didn't know, too, if they were kind of possibly associated with the memories coming back. Because obviously for a lot of these guys, whether they had a previous life or not or whatever, 
these their memories were purged or blocked or whatever. So maybe when those things start like trying to come back into their, you know, th- their synapses or whatever, maybe some of the times that is what's causing the headaches or something. But Could either be. way, he seems to be experiencing them when they're when he's trying to remember something. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. headaches suck. <laughs> For two years to have passed, you know, he has he doesn't seem to have remembered a whole lot, but there are little bits and pieces that are are coming back to him, and of course. Conveniently, the memories that he is having about this first job that he had also pertain to the story that's happening outside of him. You know, the the CIA were introduced to the new Conklin, basically, Pamela Landy, and uh, they are not pursuing Bourne. You know, they Treadstone was shut down. They essentially just let Bourne go, at least from her level on down. She doesn't even know Treadstone. But, you know, they are working on another thing that a job that goes wrong, which then, you know, of course, Bourne is framed for. So that's how they end up being on, you know, back going back after Jason Bourne, just like they were in the first movie. Yeah. What did you think of Landy? You know, it's funny. I, I think I said just about the same exact thing about Conklin in the first movie, Chris Cooper's character. But I remember really disliking her. Like. Hmm first watching the movie because because they're going after Bourne, you know, it's like she's the villain, just like Conklin. But really from from the very first time that she even hears of Treadstone or Jason Bourne's existence, she's working off of bad information because he was framed. So watching it again this time, I was like I was able to have a much more open mind about Landy and her motivations as a character and like more understanding like, you know, she's just working off the intelligence that she's given and doing her job. And then, you know, she obviously ultimately ends up kind of seeing what's really going on. And, you know, she's she's really she's not a villain. So no, for some some credit, she is not as bad as I remembered. It's kind of funny how that happens. Like when you watch a movie the first time and especially I feel like when we're younger, we're kind of conditioned sometimes to think like there's these black and white villains. Yep. In a way, like they're, however they're portrayed is how they are. And so therefore that's how you're supposed to view them. But yeah, watching this as, you know, as we're a little older, you kind of look at things in a different way and say like, not everything is black and white. And sometimes like, even in like on a job, you're really only able to deal with the information, like you said, that you're given. And so it kind of, it causes you to see her character and other characters around her in a different light. And yeah, I I feel like that's the benefit of going back and rewatching these movies is you, you see things a little differently because of age sometimes. Yeah, but it, I thought, it, yeah, I thought she was a great character, a great addition, especially in her casting. I can't say I've seen Joan Allen in a whole lot, but similar to Cooper, I thought the reasons for which she was chosen is just her ability to kind of portray authority and the seriousness of the role. And so like you can take her seriously, but also, like you said, you can also sympathize with her and the reasons for what she's doing. And she, I think she portrayed that very well, much like Chris Cooper did. Yeah. We also see there was another, just like we had in, in Identity, there's a sort of a, a small role of a of a person that became a much more well-known actress. Michelle Monaghan is one of the analysts there in the room, their their Berlin office there. I, I honestly did not catch her either, man. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, we have a much bigger, not cameo, but much more recognizable person just coming off of, you know, the, the release of Return of the King the year before, Carl Urban is mm. he one of the villains of course most well known for playing Aomer in the lord of the rings 
and I'm sure that this was the first time I had seen him in anything else, you know, because again, the two towers and return of the King had just come out the, the previous two years. So, but I, I, it was cool seeing him in something, something different. Yeah. It's a very, very different role. I think I was just so used to seeing him as Aomer, not, not just as, you know, the long hair and the beard and the accent and everything, but just in a role that kind of cemented him in my mind is like very honorable yeah. So to, to see him in this. I mean, I remember not seeing this for the first time, but seeing it earlier in life and not really like placing me like, Oh, that's Aomer from, from Lord of the Rings. But I mean, now obviously again, as I'm older and I've seen him in more things, now I identify him pretty quickly. I think more, more often I associate him with his role in start in the Star Trek films. Oh yeah. yeah I think I it's not think... Scotty. I forget who he plays in those. He's a doctor. Yeah, I think I only saw the first one of those, so I, I don't remember those as well. Yeah, they're worth rewatching. Well, maybe I'll check them out. They're not ones I would lump together as like a trilogy that needs to be watched as a trilogy. Like, yeah, the the first two stand on their own, and the third's kind of like, eh, not necessary. But you get why they did it. Yeah, it's definitely not comparable to Born. Yeah. Well, our introduction to Amer, or I don't even know his actual character's name, but he's a Russian operative i guess that works for this oil baron guy and he's where was oh he's the one that that kills the agents in berlin in berlin yeah yeah that porn is framed for and then he goes back to his boss and you know he's given some new files and he's about to go out on another job and it turns out that he's going after jason Bourne because somehow they've figured out where Bourne is i believe somewhere in india and so he goes and and finds them and <laughs> i think we both had something that we we real we noticed from this next scene while we're back back with marie and and jason Bourne. is yeah that he's he's running on the beach but in cargo shorts right which just seems very uncomfortable to me it it seems like it was like when I first saw it, I was like, it's more of a setup for somebody who's running from something. I didn't think that anybody just strapped down their cargo shorts and went for a jog. Right. Meaning But I don't know. Maybe that's what they did in his training and he was just used to that or something. And maybe he needed to carry a lot of things with him. And so the pockets really helped. Maybe. But, but yeah, I, I thought at first I thought it looked like he was running in cargo shorts and like hiking boots. I was like, man, this someone yeah. needs to teach him. I don't know if his memories are serving correctly, but this isn't what it's not what you put on when you go for a run. Especially not in the sand. Right. I just run barefoot if you're going to run in the sand. But maybe, maybe he's trying to sweat and just kind of, you know. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I've, I've run in cargo shorts before and it's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. You, it, they just seem that they'd be too heavy, too bulky. Right. Not, not comfortable at all. Just smacking against your legs as you run. It's not, yeah, not ideal. Yeah. So, but he immediately makes AMR's character when he you know he's driving in the car and he just immediately everything about him is wrong is what he tells marie later and so he immediately goes to get marie and he's like we're blown we gotta get out of here and so then we have uh, our first sort of smaller scale sort of car chase as they are you know trying to get away and i had forgotten about as they're you know they're they're driving and you know he's he says to marie you know like i told them what would happen if they didn't leave us alone, you know, that, that famous quote from the end of born identity. And she's, she's like, you have a choice. And he's like, you know, he's, 
he doesn't see another way other than just like I gotta you know go after him because they they didn't leave us alone. But she's like, no, like let's just let's just go. We don't have to bring the fight back to them. And I had forgotten about this moment, but then you know as he does seem to be compl- contemplating it right in the moment before she gets shot. And Rest in peace, Marie. There's there goes Marie. There goes Marie. Much like the fate of Rachel Dawes in the Dark Knight, another middle, mm. middle movie of a trilogy. Right. So, so tell us how do you, how do you feel about Marie? How do you feel about this part? I I was never a huge fan. I I I think we talked about it in the last episode from yeah. Eddie. I yeah. I just I don't know. I just never felt like she added a whole lot to the movie. I mean, other than like she gives you know something for Bourne to be upset about. So I mean I I do feel bad for him and I I honestly it feels like we're repeating the same conversation we had about Rachel when we were talking about the Dark Knight right <laughs> like yeah we feel bad for Bruce but not super gonna miss Rachel and I feel the same way about Marie I'm sorry but I I wasn't super sad as a viewer for myself when she died right I think it kind of just goes to show that sometimes in movies there are those characters that just don't hit it right yeah that not every character is necessary there are some there are some films that we will watch there's plenty of films that we love in which not a single character is wasted and they have a purpose and it's played out well and it's cast very well this Uh is just one that you kind of get it for certain purposes in the first film but it still doesn't mean that the character was compelling you know for for jason Bourne himself sure it gives him kind of like an emotional center point in a way throughout his story and something that he's wanting to identify with and protect and go home to and whatever. But at the same time, I feel like either, I don't know if it's the writing or whatever, if it's just the character itself, like there's nothing truly compelling about Marie where you've, you felt the weight of losing Marie as the audience member. Right. You're just like, like you said, for like for Bruce and now for born, I feel bad for the character I like. Yeah. But, but that's about it. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 too bad, but and it I, is tragic. Like it's a very tragic death. I mean, <laughs> what a way to go! Right, the guy was going for born. Yep, and just missed and driving off the bridge. And he tries to give her some some rescue breaths under the water, and doesn't work. I don't know. I mean, I don't know much about you know you know so much more about rescue breaths than I do. <laughs> but it seems like giving those to somebody underwater isn't as effective as if you were doing it above the water. But obviously Probably. that was only his only option right there. But yeah, he's, it was definitely a last resort. But it just it brought brought me back to the first film of just like our very first time seeing Born in the water and kind of what gets him going on his mission is, that, you know, he, he starts out in the water in Born Identity and yeah. and then he's back in the water and kind of motivated to keep pursuing you know, his story a little bit because of ending up in the water again here with Marie. And now she just kind of floats off and I'm not sure how long he remains underwater. It gets away, but man, he can hold his breath. Yeah. And I'm sure that was another part of the the training. Right. And I, not to, you know, just in the off chance that somebody's listening to this that hasn't watched the entire trilogy yet, I won't give away anything about the third movie, but let's just say we will come back to the water thing again. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. I, just, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, I don't know yeah. if they did all that on purpose, but if they did, kudos. I like to think that. Yeah. Those are cool points to make. So, yeah. 
it just made me think like so like you know he's in the water he he figures out obviously that marie is dead there's no point in saving her he can't and he's just kind of there and then it goes back to the bridge and carl urban's character i think it's like kirill or kirill or i don't know it's one of those names i'm going to mispronounce but either way carl urban is on the bridge and just looking over along with all the locals you know at the spot where the car went in and doesn't see him coming up i don't know i feel like as a trained assassin or whatever you'd wait a little longer knowing that the trained assassin is also in the water like maybe i don't maybe you did miss maybe he's holding his breath for a long time maybe he's going to come out on the other side of the river but like stick around for a second and a few hours and make sure right because it obviously comes back to bite him yep yeah he he accepted the fact that the job was done and left way too easily, way too early. But, you know, like you said, if he, if he hadn't done that, then we might not have had much else to, to do in the movie. So that's true. Meanwhile, back at the CIA, we have Pam and Abbott getting together now talking about Treadstone. And she comes up with this convoluted theory that Bourne and Conklin were in business together because they find this big account of money that Conklin had. And so now she's working off the idea that Bourne and Conklin were both traitors and then Bourne killed Conklin. And now he, you know, obviously she also thinks that he killed these two agents in Berlin. And so, you know, once again, they've turned Bourne into this big bad guy that he just isn't based on bad intelligence. And, you know, he's just trying to live his life. And obviously, you know, ultimately we we learned that Abbott is behind the whole thing with, you know, the, how Marie died and their attempts to kill Bourne in India. But, you know, for now it's just like, again, I said the same thing in the last movie. If they just left him alone, everything would have been fine, but they couldn't. And he told them. Yep. Well, to be fair, he told Conklin. Yes, but Nikki was there. Lainey doesn't know. That's true. But she doesn't know obviously like, like through any of this, that she's poking a bear here, you know? Right. Yeah, and, and Abbott does try to warn her, to be fair, but he also obviously has ulterior motives in everything that he's doing or saying. You know, he's he just wants Born dead. Anything that, that's going on, he's like, let's take him out. And she she doesn't see it that way. You know, she wants information, and so she wants to bring him in alive. So he comes up, pops up on the radar at the, the Naples airport in Italy. And I just, I remember, I love this scene because it feels like he's back. You know, like he goes into the room where he's being detained and he waits and then obviously takes out the, the consulate agent and the guard. It's like, all right, here we go. Born's back, baby. Yeah. I was so confused when I was watching this, though. I mean, obviously, I hadn't seen this one for a long time. And as I was watching it the other night and he's, the, you know, they say he's he's popped up in Naples. I was like, how did he get to Florida so fast? <laughs> I was, for a second, I had to like double check where he's at, and then they're speaking Italian, and I was like, "Oh, oh yeah, there's Naples, not in America." Different Naples. Yeah. I need to work on my geography, but <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a really cool scene. I was really honestly, I was like, "Man, he kind of let himself get caught." The heck, I had I had forgotten why he had gone into that room in the first place, or why he'd kind of let himself get taken into custody. I had never I had never thought of it that way. That he like got detained on purpose, but you might be onto something. I don't know. I, it just made me think. As soon as I saw him, because obviously, like it's it's a really cool scene that kind of almost reminds you of the park bench scene, right? 
you know, as, as soon as that gun's pulled, he's it's already out of their hands and they're down on the ground and he's done or they're done or whatever. Yeah. But he immediately goes for the guy's phone and he's got the equipment, the tools to start looking up or start grabbing the guy's SIM card from the phone and checking numbers and locations and all that kind of stuff. So it just, it made me think that he was intentionally sitting in there, especially when he wasn't responding to any of your questions. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That part was definitely feels like he's just, he's waiting for the right moment. Yep. Then, you know, he waits till the guys like pulls his gun and then he goes for it. But yeah, great scene. But uh, he is back. Right. <laughs> Could have been the tagline for the movie. <laughs> back, baby. Any sequel. Yeah. Frodo's back. <laughs> Abbott, you know, in this movie, he's he's a different guy in this movie. We can see and it's been a couple of years, and maybe he kind of felt like all the Treadstone stuff was over and done with, and he could just move on. Although he's also secretly plotting, you know, whatever he is with the Russian guy. But he definitely, he, he feels like a different character almost in this movie. Yeah, he, he felt a lot more calm in the last one. Like he was just kind of making Conklin do what he needed him to do. He was just kind of motivating people or pushing them to kind of do stuff. But he was, you know, he, I rarely remember seeing him like yell or get disgruntled in the last one. He was just annoyed and voiced yeah. his frustrations but he was fairly calm for the most part if you like uh-huh. because people feared him in a way i guess but in this one True. from the time that landy approaches him he's just very he's very annoyed yeah you know and he and he even like voices like he's a certain time away from retirement and he this is not the thing that he wants popping up on his radar right now right yeah he you know there's the one one scene where she you know, they talk about like, well, as long as we're cutting the crap, you know, he, she basically says like, you had Conklin killed and he doesn't even deny it. You know, it's not like he's even trying to cover that up. He's just like, he did what had to be done because he couldn't, couldn't get the job done. But now he's still two years later, still trying to have Bourne killed. And then Nikki, Julia Stiles gets, gets pulled back into everything because she, she was there with Bourne in Paris and Conklin. She was there the night Conklin died. So they kind of bring her back in, not really giving her any choice in the matter. No. Yeah, I wonder what she was doing for the past two years, where they yeah. placed her or whatever. It's not even really clear. It's like, is she still working for the CIA, or is she doing something different? Like, she's in Amsterdam. But other than that, we don't really get any indication of what she's been up to. Yeah. You definitely get a clear picture, though, that she's not, as as soon as, I mean, there's a whole lot going on in the scene where they feel like they've kind of nabbed Bourne, or they're closing in on him and he eludes them as he always does but you kind of get the sense that nikki doesn't really ever since what happened in paris yeah that there's not a whole lot of loyalty on her part to the cia uh-huh you know like she just she's she's quickly i wouldn't say on born side but sympathetic to him uh-huh you know and just giving him information yeah yeah, and it could be that once, you know, things got really real there at the end of for her because she was, you know, probably not used to being so close to, like, the actual violence and things that, that went on, the dangerous stuff. Right. The logistics coordinator, and so maybe that was something that kind of, if she did leave the CIA or something, maybe that was part of it. But I do like the part, and this might not be exactly chronologically, but where she's, you know, they're talking about, like, how, like, Bourne, he must have made a mistake, and she's like, no, they don't make mistakes. Like, she knows these agents better than anybody else in the room, even more so than Abbott, because he was, like, you know, a little bit removed 
from it. But yeah, just any of those any of those scenes where she's kind of like she's the the resident experts on what these agents are, what they're capable of, and all that stuff. I, I thought I think is really really good stuff. I feel like the more appropriate line would have been that Born doesn't make mistakes because I think we see from the first one the other Treadstone agents who he encounters they do make some mistakes. <laughs> that's 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 fair. Yeah, good point. But Born definitely does not. Right. But it's, it, it is very interesting in their in her interaction with Jason, you know, when he's just trying to get information out of her, he doesn't really view her as like a fellow, you know, not like a colleague or a coworker like that. He's just a person that he needs to get information from. And so he doesn't, you know, he, he treats her as any, as if he was interrogating anybody. So he's a little, you know, a little rough with her, not afraid to, you know, put fear into her at all. Right. And so it kind of, it shows you a little bit of his, his assassin side more you know obviously we see him as jason Bourne quite a bit but then there's like his ruthless a little bit unhinged side when he's when he's talking with her and so you know it definitely makes you see like there's a side of him that can kind of snap a little bit and that can kind of be triggered by certain things and it's understandable because it's it's kind of like you know like what does a a wild animal do if they're backed into a corner like they're gonna you know scratch and claw or whatever they have to to get away like that's he's he's like that's his back is against the wall you know he 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 knows at this point that they think he was the one that that killed those two agents because he's you know he's tapped in the phones or whatever and overhears the call but he's still you know he's asking him like what about treadstone you know he doesn't even know that treadstone has been shut down but he's like he's still confused and he's angry and he's grieving and yeah it it definitely makes sense that he would kind of lash out in that way but Going back a little bit, we've got the scene where he goes to Munich. That's where he goes first before he goes to Berlin to see this other former Treadstone agent who apparently they're the the last two guys left. Yeah. Yeah. And I I immediately recognized him from Lord of the Rings too, though. I've seen him in other stuff, man. He's one one of those guys that you see in stuff and you're like, oh, I, I know who that is. I always recognize him as from Lord of the Rings first. But he's yeah he's Lord Lord Celeborn in Lord of the Rings Martin Sokus or another name I'm gonna mispronounce throughout the history of this show. But, yeah, <laughs> I I totally did not remember seeing him in this movie, but immediately recognized him and as as the as the Treadstone agent he encounters here, and they have an awesome scene together. Yeah, so let me first interject. Like I did not make that connection at all. Like I you know it's kind of like with you. With Aemer not recognizing Carl Urban without the long blonde hair and the different accent and everything, like same for me. This guy without the long blonde hair, different accent, totally did not realize that he was was Celeborn from Fellowship of the Ring. Like that, when I saw your note on here about that, I was like, whoa, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. So, but yeah, great scene between these two. Another good fight scene. Really, I guess really the only fight scene we have in this movie. As far as like that, you know, classic like hand-to-hand combat. Born uses something obscure as a weapon, and but I, one thing that stood out to me, and I kind of had this thought as we were talking about him, you know, in the in the airport, is that like you know it's been two years since he's had to do anything like this. So you wonder if like he almost seemed a little rusty when they first started fighting in this scene. Hmm. You know, yep. he, he, he does he does make the mistake of think is it like I think the phone rings and he like turns his head for one second and then the guy, even though his hands are tied, right, you know, attacks him and so you know, they end up in this fight and 
it it takes a couple minutes for Bourne to kind of like collect himself, and then he, you know, obviously ends up being victorious. Yeah, the rolled up magazine. I mean, uh, just like the pen in the first one. Right. I love yeah. the, the the resourcefulness. Like whatever's around, you can turn it into a weapon somehow if you have the right training. And he does it. One thing that is recalled from the first movie that was also the, in, in this fight, the those punch sound effects <laughs> are back. They, they're very exaggerated. I was like, when the fight started, I was listening for them. And at first I didn't hear them as much. I was like, okay, they, they fixed it. They fixed it. And then you hear them in there. And I was like, yep, this is... <laughs> this is like a almost a trademark of the born fights where it's like let's yeah. put some kung fu stuff in there some of those over exaggerated punch sounds and it doesn't it didn't i feel like in this one it didn't really take you out of it at all yeah i wasn't i wasn't laughing through it because it was only here or there but you definitely heard them in there i definitely but, noticed this time around after talking about it the last time yeah but yeah that is kind of funny i do have a note that i want to say this is one of those like just like a nitpicky thing and it's not about this movie in particular. It's about like movies or TV in general. When somebody is strangling somebody. Yeah. And, you know, the person that's being strangled obviously is fighting. And then as soon as they stop struggling at all, the person that's doing the strangling lets go. What bothers me about that is like if you are legitimately trying to kill somebody, if you are cutting off the oxygen supply to their brain just long enough for them to pass out, they're not dead. They've just lost consciousness. So as soon as you take the the tension off of their airway, they're going to start breathing again. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to like recover and turn out great or anything, but it's just one of those things. It's always bothered me. And there's there's another similar sort of thing later that, you know, we can we can get to, but yeah, just one of those things. Yeah. But again, being in, in a film like this, especially with Jason Bourne, you, you don't really you don't think about it too quickly. You don't hold it against him. You just kind of go on, and as he moves on, you move on. Yeah. But it, it is one of those things, like, when you start noticing in a movie, like, now that you mention it, I'm going to notice it all the time now. <laughs> right. It I is mean, one of those things that's like, yeah, unless you you hear the neck snap or unless you hear, like, the, the crunch of something, you right. kind of figure they're like, he just put him to sleep. Yeah, and maybe in this case, that's all he was trying to do. Obviously, then he ends up blowing the house up anyway. Right. So I mean, like, if your intention is to kill him, like, yeah. don't do it in a fire, poor guy. Very clever, though, the putting the magazine in the toaster, turning it on, and, you know, opening up the gas line. So it, it takes takes a few minutes, gives him some time to get away. Very clever. He is smart, though, because, I mean, you think about it. Like, if I was in a house that I wasn't familiar with at all, and maybe who knows how long he was actually in the house already. That's a I didn't think about yeah. that. But anyway, like he quickly like he had eyes on where the toaster was. He knew where the gas line where to pull it. Yeah. You know, he's 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 very quick on his locations. It's just like him when he looks at a map, just a yeah. few seconds of glancing and he knows he's familiar with the area. Right. Yeah, he's very smart. I thought it was clever when he goes to try to track down Landy now that she's she's in Berlin. You know, he, he goes, he, he calls all the hotels. Well, now he's in Berlin as well, I should say. He calls all the hotels in the phone book and finally finds that there's one where Pamela Landy is staying at. And then when he goes to the hotel, he calls it once that she'll pick up. And then he goes to the front desk to ask them to call her. But then when they say it's busy, he knows that she's in the room. I always looked at it as like, oh yeah, he's just trying to find out the room number. But I never, like, I kind of picked on it this time, like, 
he has he calls and then has them call, so he knows like if it's busy, she means that she answered the phone and is in the room. But again, smart guy. Oh, but I always I always thought it was just room number because yeah. they make it seem like room number, you know, just based on where the camera's looking. Yeah, and that, I mean that's definitely part of it too. I think it's both for sure. But speaking of something that may not be as smart though, maybe perhaps like being a CIA agent and checking into a hotel under your own name. Right. You'd think when these agents travel, no matter how high they up in the organization, they've got like traveling names. You would think. I mean, like if celebrities do it, CIA agents do it. You know they do. They right. have to. I mean, politicians, everybody travels under different names. Right. So they can't be located. So for him to be able to just like go through the phone book and just kind of ask for Pamela Landy at each of these hotels and they're like, oh, no, she's not here. You know, it just kind of seemed a little careless, either A, on the writer's part or B, on the CIA's part, and you're hoping, as the citizen of a country, that your CIA organization is not that careless. Right. But it's a film. It is a film. Indeed. So, by finding her at the hotel, he's able to follow her to the CIA office, or whatever that is, where they're all at with all the computers and everything, where they're doing their work. So we get the first great scene where he's he's up on the building across the street, looking right at Pam through the scope of a rifle, and he calls her, and they they have their first conversation over the phone, and you know she mentions the two agents that he killed, and that kind of triggers for him the memory of you know he has been in Berlin and killed two people before, you know we're like we're getting more pieces of this flashback that he has, and that kind of throws him off for a second. But then he's like, all right, I want to come in or whatever he says, like, the, you know, bringing up Nikki. And they're like, oh, I might not be able to find her. And he's like, oh, it shouldn't be too hard. She's standing right next to you. And that's one of those. It's just like, oh, yeah, I love I, yeah, I love the panic that sets in in the room. And they're, they're all like, he's here. Born's here. Yeah. And that's that's something you didn't see in the first movie a whole lot. But in this one, they definitely do a good job at those played up scenes of like, yeah, he's he doesn't make mistakes like Nikki said, and he's one step ahead of everybody. Yeah, even if it's a small step, like he's still he's still ahead and can elude you. I but love yeah, that, was, that was a very cool reveal. Yeah, and I had kind of forgotten about this one. You know, I I always remember the the one at the end where he does something similar, but I had forgotten that that it happens twice. But this coming up, we kind of see like really starts like the spiral of Abbott's character. Zorn, yeah. you know, the guy that was kind of Conklin's right hand in the first one, you know, he's been around in this movie. He's like, hey, I want to show you something. He takes him down to the the little place where Carl Urban's character, you know, took out the power and stuff. And he's like, you know, something just doesn't add up. I don't think this is Bourne. Maybe he's being set up. And Abbott, who wants Bourne to look guilty because he wants to kill him, ends up killing Zorn because he's, you know, he's on to something like something's not right here. And of course, Landy is kind of tracking this too. She sees them leave the room together. I think she's starting to get, you know, some ideas about, you know, Abbott obviously not being all on the up and up. But this is another thing where, like, okay, Abbott stabs Zorn, I think a couple times. We don't explicitly see where or exactly with what. I don't know how big the knife was or whatever. But this is another thing that happens. Like, somebody gets stabbed, like, let's say in the stomach, and it's like they're dead or unconscious immediately. And I'm like, Okay, it takes a couple seconds for like the blood to leave your brain to the point where you turn unconscious. Just another nitpicky thing, but you know, 
you know, as far as Zorn goes, like not not a terrible character. You know, he's doing his job. Mostly he's not like a higher level person, so he's mostly just following orders, but you know, he he meets his end here at the hands of the dirty dirty abbot. So, RIP Danny Zorn. He's just trying to do his job and please his boss. It's no fault. I mean, he might have chosen the wrong people to be loyal to, but Yeah, right. He's not Jason Bourne, so he's allowed to make mistakes. That's true. And he did. True. Trusted the wrong people here. Yeah. But getting back to Jason Bourne, not too long after we have another cool getaway. Yeah, he turns up at the like the train station as they're tracking him, so then they send the you know the local police after him. Oh, and this is after this is after he goes to the hotel, isn't it? After he, he kind of gets oh, into the the room where he had his first job. Yeah. And yeah. Start coming back even more. You know, we see that what happened was he went to go kill the the Nesky guy, but then his wife was there when she wasn't supposed to be, so he had to kill them both. Hold on, as a as a bigger fan of these movies than I am, at some point doesn't Nikki say to him when he's confronting her that he was never in Berlin? Oh yeah, well so yeah, we we talked about it kind of out of order, but the scene where he's interrogating Nikki, right after they do the whole meet by the world clock in in Berlin, yeah, they, she gets on the tram and then they get off. He goes like underground, like you know, subway or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he asked, like, when was I in Berlin? And she said, you never were in Berlin. You know, they said, it wasn't in your file. And right. so clearly that first job was off the books. Okay. That's what but, I was thinking. But I was like, man, why does Nikki say that? Like, wouldn't she know? Yeah. But she's, again, she's not a Treadstone agent. She's just, you know, someone that's doing the bidding of whoever's above her. So there's reason that she wouldn't have known, I guess. Right. So yeah, then you got this whole getaway scene where he, you know, he sees that the the police are are there, you know, and they check his the room he checks into, which was across the 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 hall. So he gets out, you know, goes outside, leaves, and ends up, you know, going to the like transport. Gets on the train, or not on the train, but he like, well, he does get on the train, and then he like runs over all the train tracks to where he, you know, is behind the trains where they can't see him. Then he goes and jumps on that boat. But then he gets off the boat because they see he's on the boat and they're trying to pull the boat over. And then he gets up from the bridge and then gets on a train <laughs> and leaves. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely another good scene for him just as far as his resourcefulness and everything. You know, we see the, the part where he's he's starting to be pursued by the police on the street. He stops and looks at that, like I'm assuming the subway schedule or whatever. And, and then he gets off the boat by using that, that big hook to like pull himself up onto the bridge underneath the street where they're looking for him. Another very resourceful moment for him. Yeah. It's one thing I really love about his character. You, you know, you think like pen magazine, the boat hook thing, all these different things that he's had to use just to be resourceful. I mean, it's probably a deep part of his training using whatever you have around you, you know, but it's like, it's like they say with assassins sometimes like anything can be a weapon. Yeah. Anything can be used as a tool for a getaway. Yep. You just got to have the, the wherewithal and the awareness on how to use it. And so him walking around the boat real quick to kind of look for something to pull himself up on was like, huh. he knows what he's doing. It wasn't just using it as a weapon, but it was simply just a device to kind of further his mission of getting away at that time. And so yeah, I, I thought it was a really cool getaway scene. And of course, from the jump on the boat now, he's got a pretty significant limp. So you uh, know, yes. he's he is human after all. He is. He's, he is not invincible. As much as we'd like to think so with him. Right. I 
this the next kind of sequence we get is you know sort of the ultimate downfall of, of Abbott. You know, he's he's really spiraling now. You know, he asked the one guy, he's like, where's Danny Zorn? Like trying to, you know, act clueless about it. And this is right before, you know, what's her name? Landy is, is notified that Zorn's body has been found. So she goes to see Abbott. But before that, Bourne is waiting for Abbott back in his hotel room. And he calls the, the Russian guy. And so we this is where we find out that Abbott was behind the whole thing. You know, Abbott gave that Russian guy like $20 million from the CIA but he got his cut, but it's like, for this to work, Bourne has to be taken care of, which obviously did not happen the way it's supposed to early in the movie. So, and then we find out that Bourne was recording the whole thing, as well as their conversation after the phone call, and, you know, he decides to spare Abbott because he knows Marie wouldn't want him to kill her, too. Marie wouldn't want him to kill Abbott, but it's not... He leaves him the gun. He does. And... Then, shortly after, Landy shows up, and they don't have a very long conversation, and he kills himself. I'm not sorry. Yeah. It's quite a quite a spiral. Yeah, yeah, uh, from the first one, from someone who was fully confident and a few years away from retirement. Yep. Quickly undone. Couldn't help himself, trying to make more money or whatever it is. So Bourne sends pam the tape of that conversation so now she fully knows that like born had nothing to do with whatever happened you know that he's he was like truly just trying to get off the grid and but unfortunately for him now this guy amer slash carl urban slash whatever his actual name is the russian guy is still after him and we have the great car chase the one that won all the awards yeah yeah the car chase goes to the Bourne supremacy. All the Bourne films, great chases. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, this was this was a very very different from the first movie, where the first one was just a lot of maneuvering, getting away from more like local police. But in this one, he's actually dealing with somebody who's on his level almost. Yeah, almost just as determined. And it yeah, yeah it it goes very differently, and it also ends very differently than the first one did. It does, yeah. The first one, you know, we talked about, it's just kind of a very quiet ending. They just make their way down to the parking garage. They stop, and there's a moment to breathe. This one ends up with a significant crash after they've been in a tunnel for a little bit. Bourne goes to confront him, and Bourne, you know, they've they've made eye contact. So at this time, he like he are, he knows that the guy that's pursuing him is the guy that killed Marie. But when he goes up to him in the vehicle, he is dying. He's on his like last breath. He dies in that moment. Yeah. Or at least significant head trauma and bleeding. So yeah, he's he's a goner. Right. Yeah, and obviously Bourne sees no reason to finish the job there, so Yeah. Right. But then that I mean that leaves Bourne with kind of in his mind one one thing left to do here. Yeah. It's kind of I read that they originally planned to end the movie with this scene. And I could see why like it would it would be kind of pretty somber type of ending to the movie. Right. He, you know, he he fully knows the truth now. What happened with that first job in Berlin with Nesky? So he goes and finds her daughter, their daughter, the Nesky's daughter, so that uh, he can let her know the truth because she's grown up her whole life thinking that her mom killed her dad and then killed herself. And you can see where knowing the truth in that situation would make a big difference in how you think of your parents that you've lived without for for all these years now. Oh, yeah. And especially the, her viewpoint of them. 
I, yeah. I loved how it was almost like a sense of duty for him to go and do that. It kind yeah. of showed a little bit of what his mentality was from the first film, especially when it shows that he almost assassinated that guy from the first film. And then he saw that his kids were in the room. So that changed his mindset a little bit. And then yeah. when they're at the farm and he notices, obviously, that the kids are there, it puts him into that protective mode. Yeah. He's got a soft spot for kids, clearly. Yeah. Which is commendable like my- somebody that's gone through all the training and everything that he has. Right. It's no wonder that Michael Scott would Mike write Michael Scarn because they both love kids. <laughs> yes. You know? Little kid lover. Right. <laughs> but I thought that was it. It was a very good scene. You yeah. know, it just, it brought Bourne back down to earth and kind of slowed him down right where he needed to be. And yeah. Showed that side of him, which I thought was a good way to kind of start, start finishing this up a little bit. Right. Yeah. I, I do. I, it was a great scene. I am glad that they didn't end the movie on that note. Yeah, we get one more scene, and I believe we're we're back in New York now, right? New York, yeah. Yep. I should say back in New York, but we are in New York. Bourne has made his way to, and there's really, this would be his first time being back in America, though, since at least whenever he went to Paris to, you know, be the Treadstone agent over there, but however long that's been. So she, or he... He calls her. And calls she, Landy. Yeah, he calls Landy. She's just in an office in New York, and she's got some information for for him about who he is, who yeah. like his real name, how he started out, or who he started out as. Yeah. So you know, there, even still, there's like a part of me in this moment that's like, is this legit? Is she just doing what whatever it takes to try to bring him in, or is she really trying to help him? Because she does say, like, you know, I wanted to thank you. So she tells him his real name is David Webb, what his birthday is, maybe even where he's from, I don't remember. So she tries to like, hey, can you come in? And that's he does not really answer that question directly. No. Uh, I mean, it is, yeah, it is one of the things that sets these films apart is their endings. Yes. And this the beautiful one. delivery of this last line. Get some rest, Pam. You look tired. <laughs> I wasn't going to attempt to do that part. But I wasn't it comes right in. Felt it in the moment. Yes, the transition from that line right into the same closing song, Extreme Ways by Movie, is, is so good. Yeah, what I read was that they they only added that scene, like only shot it like just weeks before the movie was released because like screening audiences did not like the scene with the daughter being, you know, being the end. So so they added that little tag, which I I love. But then it was like I when when we got to that scene, I was like, oh, wow, it's it's over already. It the movie just kind of felt short a little bit. And then looked it up. It was only about 10 minutes shorter than Born Identity. But I also read that they apparently did not necessarily have any specific intentions of making a third movie. But there wasn't, I don't know what their source was on that. They didn't, I didn't see like an actual quote of anybody from the movie saying that specifically. But it certainly feels like it's being set up for another movie. It does. Yeah, I mean, I'd have trouble sometimes when you're making a sequel to a highly successful film that... It, there wouldn't be something at least in the back of people's minds, in, whether it's the writers, producers, that there's a third one incoming. You got to know this is going to be successful and that people are going to ask for it. And maybe that's what they got from that test screening. 
especially with that original ending with Nesky's daughter, was that this this needs more or the audience wants more. So mm-hmm. they chose to throw this in. Because like if you were to end it with just that scene of Nesky, Nesky's daughter, and then their his kind of I'm sorry and goodbye or whatever, you'd you'd have to start the next film with some kind of conjured way to make him continue on. Yeah. But this this last conversation with Landy obviously gives you the great liner and Moby coming in, which is an amazing way to do it. You couldn't, I don't think he could like bring on the Moby with the last conversation that he had with Nesky's daughter there. Cause that'd be kind of a weird way to do it, but <laughs> it's just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> that would make Bourne seem kind of like a, like a real jerk, but anyway, right. but uh, I, I think they had to use that to set up. Like there's more coming. So give him a name and some information to keep him hunting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it is believable that maybe initially they were not specifically intending for this to set up a third, but then that's probably what they had in mind when they went back and added in this last scene, you know, because yeah, if they had ended it with just the scene with the daughter and him walking away, that would have been like, okay, like, where do we go from here? There's not really, there's definitely nothing setting anything up then. And it could have just been like, okay, maybe now he's, he's able to, to get away and, and just be left alone. But, you know, now we have not even even with what we get, there's not anything clear as far as like a specific plot direction. You know, like, sure, Landy has looked into him. She gives him his real name, if that really is his real name. And then that's it. Like he doesn't, he's not going to come in. But I guess he's just planting the seed in his mind. Like if he wants to know more about who he was, then, you know, he can he can go talk to Pam. Other than that, there's really no, like, there's no, like, loose threads from the plot of this movie or the first movie. You know, the people in charge of Treadstone are all dead. All the other agents are dead. Right, there's no real threat. Yeah. So, and honestly, like, it's been long enough since I've watched these movies, I don't even remember exactly how Ultimatum starts as far as, like, you know, getting getting him back in the fold or, or whatever. So, looking forward to watching that one again. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, like, like with all of these, it's been a while since I've seen any of them, but I remember there are quite a few memorable things about Ultimatum, and I can't wait for the ending. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But and it's possible that it's the movie of the trilogy I've seen the least, because it was you know the one that came out the latest, but it's, yeah. it's been a long time either way. So, yeah. That'd be great. Can always use some more Matt Damon. Right. <laughs> and that will not be the end of Matt Damon in our in our top 10 list. It's still, it will not. Still more Matt we Damon. Like, we like so, him. As a reminder, you out there listening, if you don't mind helping us out, you know, like our Facebook page, leave a review, rate it, share it with your friends, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, you know, just uh, tell, tell your friends and family all about it if you like what we're doing. And if you don't, let us know too. Let us know what we could do better. We appreciate listening. And join us next time for the Born Ultimatum. For now, we're glad you're here with us. Here at the end of this podcast. Get some rest, Sean. You look tired.